Good morning, Pacific Hope Church. It's not unusual for us to begin our morning examining God's Word and, and recapping the fact that as a church, we do expository preaching. We preach a text and we, we work through the text together to understand God's grace to us. We're currently working through the, the book of First John. We find ourselves in chapter 3, and I'd like to change our metaphor this morning a, a bit as we recap what expository preaching is to those who might not be familiar. We've equated it a bit to binge-watching our favorite show, and we recap what we saw in the last episode so that we can be prepared for what we'll see this week. But I, I want to change a different metaphor, and I want us to understand that God's Word is a feast. It is the food that nourishes the body of Christ, and it is our act of worship to study God's word and to apply it to our lives. It's remarkable as we think about God's word being that which nourishes us, that which strengthens our church, and understand the process of, of how this meal is prepared for us. This is God's eternal word. This is God's infallible word. Looking at the bulletin this week, it, it, it astounds me, God's grace, to see how this meal has been in preparation for an entire week. The song that we just ended on, our brother Rob, through the power of the Holy Spirit, picked that song, and I didn't even realize that that's exactly what the Holy Spirit put on my heart to begin with this morning. I'm going to recap from 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That's the love of the Father made clear to us. As we prepare to, to come near to God's word this morning, we need to understand that it's the Holy Spirit that's been a part of preparing our hearts as we've prayerfully looked at what God has for us this morning. And as we prepare to consume this feast, we want to savor everybody. We want it to work through the life of our church throughout the week. So there's a change to the menu this morning. I wanted to start with that. You have in your, your bulletin that we're going to make it all the way to verse 24 this morning. I just decided that we would take some slower bites. So we're going to endeavor by the power of the Holy Spirit to look at verses 16, 17, and 18 of 1 John chapter 3. Let's pray before we begin. Father God, we come before you this morning and we're grateful to be able to worship you. We realize that this, this time that we've set aside is, is not the only time we're to worship you, but we're to worship you all day, every day, throughout the entire week. But Lord God, we come before you this morning and we hunger for your word. We desire to hear from you. We desire to be nourished and transformed by your word and we ask that through the power of the Holy Spirit that would be possible this morning. Lord God, use me as a, as a server Allow each of us, Lord God, to, to see your benevolence as you first loved us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For the sake of recap, we're going to do our reading this morning, beginning at verse 11, and we're going to read through verse 18. And I would invite you out of reverence for God's holy and inerrant word to stand with me as we read from verse 11 through verse 18. 
1 John 3, beginning at verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Benevolence. That word, the, the etymology of that word, I want us to have in mind as we undertake partaking of God's word this morning. Benevolence, the first part of that word is bene, or good, like a benefit. And the second part is what we see with the word will. We have deo volente, God's will. So benevolence is goodwill. And for us to understand the, the topic of goodwill and the generosity and the, the charity that comes along with that word goodwill, we first must take stock of and understand how deep is the Father's love for us? For that reason, verse 1 of chapter 3 seems like the right place to start. See what kind of love the Father has given us. That we should be called children of God. We noted when we, we tackled this verse together that the expression that's used, see what kind of love the Father has given us, is remarking at something that's new. Something that's never been seen before. The Greek word was the same one that the disciples used to describe their astonishment as Jesus calmed the storm. They woke up and they said, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey? It's with that exclamation that we must behold the love of the Father for us. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. We were adopted while we were yet sinners. And as we've moved through this precious epistle, we've seen that the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit because of the Father's love have transformed us. John has used very clear contrast to explain the transformation that's happened in us. If we briefly take stock of those, 1 John 1.5, we see the contrast that we've been taken from darkness and into light. We see in 1 John 2.4, that if we don't keep his commandments, we're, we're liars. But if we do, the truth is in us. In 1 John 2, 8, we see that darkness, again, is passing away and his light is already shining. In 1 John 2, 16, we see that the desires of the flesh are contrary to doing the will of the Father. In 1 John 3, 7 and 8, we, we see that that practice, that conduct of Lawlessness is contrasted with the practice of righteousness. 
In 1 John 3.10, we were struck with the, the stark reality that every human being at birth has as their spiritual father the devil. But only through the regenerating work of Jesus Christ can their father be God the Father. And in verse 14, where we left off last week, we saw that we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. So the contrast that we see in that transformation that happens because of regeneration is that we passed from hatred into love. And so this morning we'll go through and we'll understand love in a different light. We'll understand love by means of benevolence. Benevolence is God's goodwill. And in that, the intersection of compassion and generosity. That's how we'll see and understand love this morning through the benevolence of God. First, through God the Father. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. We're almost ready to start our text, but before we go to 1 John 3.16, let's go back to John 3.16. The, the love of the Father displayed in his giving of the Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son he sent his son to be an acceptable sacrifice out of his love for us. This also warrants a brief detour back in Genesis chapter 22. We won't read the whole account, but it's useful as we understand this demonstration of transformation of the heart to go back to Abraham, to go back to what God commanded of Abraham. We see in verse 2 of Genesis 22, God says to Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place that God had told him. Do you see that? That is the obedience of Abraham responding to God's commandments. And we've seen this throughout 1 John, right? We talked about the inward transformation of the Holy Spirit producing in us what? First, obedience. And so we see in that account Abraham's obedience. And what does he do? He goes on a multi-day journey. Verse 4, it says, On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey and I with the boy. And the boy will go over there and worship and come to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, his, on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they went both together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? What an incredible question, and how does that help us understand how deep the Father's love for us? Abraham walked in obedience to God's command. And what does the, the book of Romans tell us about Abraham's act of faith and obedience? It was credited to him as what? Righteousness. We're doing well, right? We're recapping. We've seen the obedience there, and, and we've seen the righteousness that was credited to Abraham. But the love, the, the love is what we see next. Abraham preparing to give up his son. His son asking, where's the, where's the sacrifice, Dad? We've got the, the firewood and we've come up here on this multi-day journey. And what of the sacrifice? 
And Abraham says with confidence in verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them together. And as we know, God did provide out of deep love a sacrifice. God honored Abraham's obedience, and it was credited to him as righteousness, but the love in that equation was God providing the appropriate sacrifice. And all of that points to the coming of Jesus Christ. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He laid his son down for us. That's the benevolence of God. And I love the fact that we started out with that hymn this morning, how, how deep the Father's love for us. But as we move now to 1 John 3, 16, the song of worship changes. And it's not just, oh, how deep the Father's love, but it's the deep, deep love of Jesus. Now we see benevolence in the Son laying himself down. You see that? It's not just God providing the sacrifice, but it's Jesus Christ in his benevolence, in his goodwill of his own accord, laying down his life for us. Let's look at that verse together. There's so much to consider. By the way, do we know that the preaching of God's word is worship? Do we know that this verse is a great way to worship God? Look what he's done for us. By this, church, we know love, that he laid down his life for us. He did that of his own accord. We think of Isaac's journey to that mount where his father worshiped and thinking the whole time, and what of the sacrifice? But Christ came, co-creator, co-eternal, in the fullness of time, knowing full well that there was only one adequate sacrifice to be given. And that was himself. That was himself. Benevolence, his goodwill. John 10, verses 17 through 19. Jesus explained, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The sacrificial lamb, the one that John the Baptist sees and announces, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He came of his own accord, and he demonstrated his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. If we look at the, the first part of that verse and we say, by this we know love, that he, he laid down his life. We would have a, a remarkable example of love. And, and even for an unbelieving world, they might look at that and say, well, that's pretty incredible. Someone would give their life for someone else. We saw last week a, a brief quote I shared from John Piper that said, it's not enough to imitate what Christ has done unless he is first our Savior. And so we have to look at the, the two words nestled in that statement for us. Look at that. It says, by this we know love, that he of his own accord, of his own goodwill, laid down his life for us. John chapter 13, we discussed and we saw last week that, that Jesus, after he dispatches Judas to betray him, has a little sidebar with his disciples in the upper room and he says, 
by this, all men shall know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And thankfully, we're all helped by the fact that we've seen the famous painting of the, of the Last Supper, so we can maybe mentally picture in our minds Jesus sitting with his disciples. And we see Jesus talking about how his disciples are supposed to love one another. But think for just a moment about that motley group of men that sat around the table with Jesus. This Jesus, knowing that he was just hours away from tear-filled agony in the garden, just days away from giving up his life, was talking about a demonstration of love for a group of men who would betray him, who would disavow him, who would argue over who got to sit next to him, who would disregard his holy commandments. And yet, Jesus willingly and lovingly prepared himself to lay down his life for them. That's benevolence. That's benevolence. And as we, we look to understand benevolence, we, we need to remember who we are when it says there that he laid down his life for us. You see, that example of, of love only becomes completely understood when we recognize the depth of our need for that love. For a man to give, give his life for someone, there must be a, a great need for it. In church, we know that need, but we need to be reminded every day. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, which we'll look at a couple of times today, but just for right now, I want you to, to ponder verse 9 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Look what it says of Christ's benevolence. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. That's benevolence. We were broke. And I'm not talking financially broke, I'm talking spiritually broke, and I'm not just talking a little broke, I'm talking about an unpayable debt. The amount of egregious offenses that we've committed against a holy God, no one could keep track of them. God can, but you know what? He doesn't want to. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, there is atonement for those who accept that sacrifice. For those who would accept, as we saw back in 1 John chapter 2, that we could accept Christ's defense. He would, he would be the one that would stand in our place. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He would wipe out our debt. He would take the spiritual resources that were rightfully his and share them with us paid in full. Benevolence. Do we know how much we need his benevolence? Do we understand what's been paid on our behalf? Because I can't move on until we've all nodded our heads to this one. Do we understand what he's done for us? Amen. That's the depth of the love of, of Christ. And it goes on from there and it says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And now this love compels us. Look what it says. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If we properly understood the debt that's been paid for us, this impacts our conduct, does it not? This is where our outward conduct, because of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, we show obedience and we show righteousness and now we show 
benevolent love. We would lay down our lives for our brothers. Now, this is an interesting statement. In the first century church, it may have been necessary for a brother or sister in Christ to lay down their life for another. You know what? I'll take the Colosseum for you. I'll take the arena. I'll turn myself into the, the inquiring authority so that you're not detained. But in our context, we don't really understand what this means to, to lay down our lives for one another. What does it really mean to give of oneself so sacrificially when it's even unmerited? Only the example of Christ will suffice. But if we examine this just a bit more closely, there's some pretty convicting explanations here. We would say, brother, I'll take a bullet for you. I will lay down my life for you. But those words, those words come cheap. If we change this, and, and we said this before back when we talked about how a husband treats a wife as we went through the book of Ephesians, we will lay down our life, but will we lay down our lifestyle? Will we take a Saturday morning off work that we get once a week and help somebody out in need? Will we take an afternoon and take a brother or a sister to a, a medical appointment? Will we open our wallet and dish out 50 bucks to somebody who's in need? We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The pattern of, of benevolence was that which Christ displayed for us. And before I move on to the next verse, I want to remind us that throughout what we've seen in this precious book, the law pointed us to what is love. The law described love for us, but only Christ perfectly demonstrated it. And that's why Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 is so poignant. It says, bear one another's burdens and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. That's what bearing one another's burdens does. That's what benevolence does. It takes all that the law describes and it applies it as a demonstration because we rightly understand what Christ has done for us. Now that we understand that, let's move to verse 17. And now we'll get practical. We understand theologically what Christ has done for us. He has regenerated us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now what does this mean for us as believers? Verse 17 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in needs, and need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Love the rhetorical question, right? How does God's love abide in him? Let's go back to the topic of benevolence for just a second. What we're talking about here is we see someone in need, okay? Let's unpack this just a bit. Listen to some messages from Steve Lawson, and uh, I try not to emulate the accents of the preachers that I listen to. We've done Alistair Begg. We won't do any Steve Lawson this morning, but, but Brother Lawson says that to see in this context is to observe or to gaze upon someone's need. You, you observe when somebody has a need. When that happens, that ought to produce in our heart an emotional response. That emotional response is one that would be described as compassion. Who demonstrated compassion more clearly than God the Son? His compassion is, is a theme throughout the book of Mark, for example. He noticed that the multitude was hungry and he took what? Compassion on them. 
He saw the paralytic and he was moved to what? Compassion. Even on the cross, he had compassion. He turned to the thief next to him and he offers his forgiveness. Today you'll be with me in paradise. He prayed for those who were guilty of crucifying him. Father, forgive them for they know now what they do. He demonstrated this, this compassion. It's important that when we observe a need or, or, deserve, or we observe the condition of, of someone else in hardship, that it move us to compassion. Now this moving to compassion, interestingly enough, who demonstrates benevolence? Is it, is it just Christians? No, actually, there are plenty of people because of the common grace of God who are able to demonstrate benevolence. There are plenty of people who can give with great philanthropical gifts and display love. They can acknowledge, even if they don't acknowledge God's hand, they can acknowledge that because they've been given health or wealth or some other resource, they can give to others. You got the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, right? You've got all sorts of examples of folks who are not regenerated by the Holy Spirit, but because of common grace, can demonstrate benevolence. So I offer you this statement. You can have benevolence without being a Christian, but you cannot be a Christian without having benevolence. You catch that? Remarkable statement. You can have benevolence without being a Christian, but you can't be a Christian without having benevolence. Came across a, a great little booklet with some excerpts on teachings on love. And this particular excerpt was written by Martin Lloyd-Jones, and it's on his sermon series on, wait for it, First John. And, and what he has to say about the need of one who has come to understand the truth of Scripture, it must produce love. Listen to what he says. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Alas, let us admit it. It is possible for a person to be correct and yet not be a Christian. It is possible for men and women to be interested in theology and to say that one theology is superior to another and to accept and defend it and argue about it, yet be utterly devoid of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God in their hearts. That's heavy. It's possible to have all the right doctrine and not possess love. The Apostle Paul, of course, says that in, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I have all these things, I have all these gifts, I have all this knowledge, and I have not love, banging gong, clanging cymbal. Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, a more thorough test than conduct or behavior or doctrine is that of love. Simple, yet it'll take us the entirety of our Christian lives to get it figured out. You cannot be a Christian and not be benevolent. The Word of God says that. That's not my opinion. James chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. James says, If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And so, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Dead. 
right? And that's what John's telling us all along. He's like, look, if you're not demonstrating obedience, if you're not demonstrating practical righteousness, if you're not demonstrating love, you might still be dead. Those are heavy words. But God has given us new life, and so as we approach this text, we approach it understanding what God the Father has done for us in sending us the Son, what God the Son has done for us in surrendering his own life, and now, because of this, we're compelled by the love of Christ. That benevolent compassion, the intersection of compassion and generosity. 1 John 3.17 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in needs, yet closes his heart against him, how is God's love abide in him? Does God's love abide in us? Amen. If it does, then we can start to apply benevolence. So we're going to look at a few different texts together to help us understand what benevolence looks like in the life of the church. We're going to get practical. As we move through the meal this morning, I'd offer you a little Old Testament side dish. If you would, please turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy 15 will begin at verse 7. And understand a bit about benevolence. Verse 7 of Deuteronomy chapter 15 says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of the towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need. We'll read on, but I want to stop there for just a second to, to help put a few things in focus. First of all, who can be benevolent? To really truly be benevolent, giving out of an attitude of what Christ has done for us, it is that person, that man or that woman has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That person can truly be benevolent, having understood what God's done for them. But who's the recipient of benevolence? Okay? So benevolence, you can be kind to anybody on the street. You can be generous because of what Christ has done for you. But the specific context that we see outlined through Scripture is to give within the family of faith. Galatians 6 says, we should first be generous to those within the household of faith. The mandate for benevolence starts in the family. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, if you see a guy at the end of the on-ramp asking for money, does that mean you have to ask him if he's a Christian before you give him a buck? No, if the Holy Spirit tells you to do it, do it. But the mandate for benevolence starts within the family of God. Back to Deuteronomy 15, verse 7, it says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor. And there's a, a bit of a teaching principle there, and that is that this idea of benevolence, there are particular times in the particular lives of believers where they may have hardship. They may have a need. God's economy is that during sometimes you have abundance. What you should do then? Give. And there are other times of, of scarcity, in which case you might need to be the recipient of benevolence. God's word here says, If one of your brothers should become poor in any of the towns that the land your Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand. Now I want us to pause and think about that for just a second. Shutting our hearts is what we see John's verbiage, right? He says, if you see your brother in need 
and you close your heart? In Deuteronomy speak, that it's to harden your heart. That is to bypass that built-in sense of compassion that you have for someone's need. You just blow past it, and you're going to say, you know what? I'm not going to help him. And look what it says here. You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to drive through Los Angeles, which is quite frightening in and of itself. As I drove through Los Angeles, I saw a number of people in those electric cars that were driving with no hands on their wheel. Okay? That's scary. And I want to tell you that as I, as I think about this, that pursuit of Christ requires both hands on the wheel. It requires both hands, and both hands to be opened. Do you remember last week we, we talked about that white-knuckled grip on our grudges? And we talked about that tenacious love of Jesus Christ, that outstretching of our muscles to, to stretch and to love until it hurts. We have to pry open those white knuckles and let go of our grudges. We have to understand that Christ has forgiven us much and we're to lead our Christian life with an open hand. And now this week, we got to pry open our hand and let go of our money. This is hard. This requires the transformation of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Both hands, church. Look what it says. Do not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. Open-handed pursuit of Christ. Verse 8 of Deuteronomy 15 says, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need. Now, this is also an important paradigm. It says you should lend him for his need, whatever it might be. Benevolence actually starts with a, with a, a friendly loan. If we go out throughout the law, there are particular prescriptions for what a loan looks like. There's not to be usury. You're not supposed to charge your brother or your sister interest, but you're supposed to help them out. Oftentimes, benevolence comes in the form of, hey, I need some help now. And because of God's economy, I know that at some point, God may prosper me again, and I can pay you back. That's one principle of benevolence. But read, there's more. Verse 9 says, Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he will cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. Now, this goes back to the Old Testament practice of the year of Jubilee. I learned something last week, interestingly. This is Bible trivia, so you can take it or leave it. But the three sons of Cain, or the, the offspring of Cain, Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal, they had really weird names. But all of those names go into the fact that they were makers of instruments, okay? And those instruments were used to celebrate the year of Jubilee. So if you take their names, that's where you get Jubilee, Here's your Bible trivia. It's free. You don't have to do anything with it. But this idea of Jubilee is that the seventh year, any lending that was done, those debts were canceled. Those debts were cut off. So what the Word of God is saying here is, hey, look, if somebody shows up at year six and a half and they ask for a loan, the biblical instruction is the debt's going to get forgiven, which means that, that when we give in benevolence, we need to be prepared to walk away from it. And well, we ought to be able to because it's not ours anyway. That's why we hold on to it with an open hand. It's God's. And the word of God warns us. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And he goes on to say in verse 10 of Deuteronomy 15, you shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be, gr not be grudging 
when you give to him, because for the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Pretty clear, right? There's some benevolence principles for us to understand. But wait, there's more. We also need to understand that when there is benevolence and a a call to be benevolent, it requires a response to the Holy Spirit. If you look at 1 John 3.16, you'll notice something that I feel John did very intentionally, and it, it goes back and it says that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, with an S, plural. If we look at this verse 17, it says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? But notice that brother is singular. Now, this is a really important thing for us to understand as we respond to the abiding Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit tells us when we need to get specific in our benevolence, okay? One commentator I read said that it's really easy to say, I love everyone. If we make that as a blanket statement, it sounds easy. But when you, sub- when you substitute everyone for someone specifically, perhaps the response changes just a bit. I love everyone. Insert name. Okay, maybe I need to evaluate that. Shepherds. Under shepherds. Ministers of Jesus Christ in this church. The word of God is clear. Watch out for yourselves first and then for all of the flock. But then right after, as we understand that, we understand also that Jesus gave an example very specifically of leaving 99 of the sheep to go after the one. This example of of benevolence here, we need to talk about a specific need. I think John may have had perhaps a, a brother or a sister in mind as he wrote this. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? We need to respond to the Holy Spirit in addressing when we're to give, when we're to be generous with those who are part of the family of faith. They might be in need. Let's look at a couple of other principles here of benevolence. We need to understand that although the Holy Spirit has regenerated us, there's still an indwelling element of sin in our lives. And because of that, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to examine our motives when and how we give. Thomas Akempis wrote this on the topic of charity, which charity, by the way, is a synonym for benevolence. Thomas Akempis says this, Now, that which seems to be charity is oftentimes really sensuality. For man's inclination, his own will, his hope of reward, and his own self-interest are motives seldom absent. On the contrary, he who has true and perfect charity seeks self in nothing, but searches all things for the glory of God. Even our most benevolent act can be marred by our sin. And because of that, we need to examine our hearts with great care. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Jesus talks to those who, who like to make their benevolent acts very visible to others, and he rebukes them on their motives. Jesus said, Beware of practicing righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. 
Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that you may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Your father who sees in secret, he'll reward you. So a couple of, of practical things just to recap there, right? We, we have benevolence lending maybe, but with a posture being ready to give. We have benevolence being first in the family of God. We have benevolence as a, as a call to do it discreetly. As we move on to understand other principles, we also need to recognize how God's economy functions. We're going to look at a couple of texts to do that together. If you would, please turn with me to Acts chapter 4. When we come to the book of Acts, it's important to understand that this book is actually called the Acts of the Apostles. These are historical facts that took place in the early church. Not everything that we see is necessarily supposed to be an immediate model for application. However, God's holy infallible and perfect word is for our correction. It is for our edification. So we take stock in what it says. At this particular time, the church was under heavy persecution. They experienced not abundance, but rather poverty. And the Holy Spirit worked in their hearts in one accord. Look at this, at, starting at verse 32 of Acts chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one of them... And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for, there were, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. There's a, there's a sermon or two right there, but I'll give you a couple of high points. First of all, the body of Christ, it says they're of one heart. They're of one soul. The way in which the Holy Spirit had worked in them, there was unity. And while there was great need, they cared for one another in that time of need. They had things in common. A few of you have that socialist light bulb going off. Wait, what? We're supposed to sell it all? It doesn't say they were supposed to sell it all, okay? What it says there is that there were some that God had blessed in a season of abundance in their lives, and they had what was necessary to sell it, to bring the proceeds, and care for the needs of the church. This highlights the love of Jesus Christ. They were Filled with, the, the, with great grace, it says. They were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can you give testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ while your brother or your sister is going hungry? You cannot. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the, at the apostles' feet. And now, something really fascinating to me, as many times as I've read this, I never realized that Barnabas was a landowner, right? We know of Barnabas 
for his ministry of encouragement. If somebody is particularly gifted at using words of encouragement, we refer to them as a Barnabas, right? It's a beautiful thing to be a, a Barnabas in the body of Christ, to use your words to encourage, but I've missed this. Barnabas also used his resources to be an encourager. It says he had a field on the island of Cyprus and he sold it and he laid the money at the apostles' feet. That encouragement, not just in word, but also literally he was putting his money where his mouth was. That's what gospel encouragement looks like. Another example, back to that 2 Corinthians text that we mentioned earlier, I want to read the this portion with you. It's an incredible passage. I heard uh, some of my brothers got to hear from this a bit during their time being ministered to at the Shepherds Conference this week. It's a remarkable text that gives us some great insights into biblical benevolence. I want to start at verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave, them, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and in speech and in knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I'll stop there. We'll continue in just a moment. But look at what's happening here. We're talking about a group of churches in Macedonia that are an extreme hardship their own affliction, their own poverty, they don't have enough themselves. But yet, because of their, their astounding understanding of what God had done for them in grace, they wanted to give. They're begging Paul for the opportunity to participate in this offering for the church of Jerusalem. Isn't that incredible? We think, well, I'm not really in a boom season right now. Maybe my benevolence isn't so possible. But look, if we understand biblical benevolence, even out of our poverty, the widow who gave her might. I've personally been the benefactor of hospitality in people's homes from people who, who really, truly cannot afford the meal they're about to serve me. And yet, out of their understanding of God's grace, they wanted to share it. And that's what we're called to. Give uncomfortably. Give generously. For they gave according to their means, verse 3, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. This is not a compulsory. This is because they understood what God had done for them. We also see in verse 8, Paul goes on to say, and I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. You see this, if we go back to, to what these outward signs are supposed to be, obedience and righteousness and love, the proof of genuine love is in the form of benevolence. An open heart and an open hand. And then verse 9, which we saw earlier, which I, I hope and pray will resonate and echo through your hearts this week. Benevolence defined. Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Praise God for that example. The churches in Macedonia understood that. Let's read on, verse 10. It says, And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now, finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring may be matched by completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left, and whoever gathered little had no lack. You see how God's economy works there? Isn't that remarkable, the care for one another out of an understanding of what Christ had done on their behalf? That's practical benevolence. There's uh, one more part of practical benevolence that I want us to view before we go on to verse 18, and that's found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. This is a tough one because as the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we are called, as Christ said, to be as gentle as doves and as shrewd as serpents. We're called to be discerning. Our benevolence requires discernment. We need to be discerning in identifying when and how and to whom we give. And Paul calls out something really important about benevolence. He says, beginning at verse 10, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ, to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. There's a call with benevolence to call our brothers or sisters to to accountability in doing what God has called them to do. Again, referencing Steve Lawson, he remarked in in a study on this particular passage, he said he started out as a young pastor administering a benevolence fund, and the benevolence fund had $20,000 in it. And every year, the pastor that managed it before him ran out of money. And he said, well, you know what? This year, we're going to put a requirement on it. If somebody wants to receive from this benevolence fund, they need to do some work around the church. And he said, at the end of year one, you know how much money I had left? $20,000, right? So that is something that needs to be understood in the, in the, the realm of this idea of benevolence. It's for helping a brother and sister who, who may become poor, who may be going through a season of need. And we do so not to be seen, but out of response of what Christ has done for us. We could say many more things about benevolence, but let's move on to to verse 18 of 1 John chapter 3. John writes, Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Not just words, but putting actions behind it. Loving, indeed, the actions that we have, that we do, and out of response to the truth. We talked a lot about truth. We understand that truth, Christ himself is truth. 
that the spirit of truth is the one he gave us to abide in us, to teach us what truth is. And it's out of that that we act and show love. Church, this is important for us to understand. Even, even coming near the topic of benevolence is, is a little interesting in some reform circles, right? Let's be honest, we, we don't want to talk too much about the benevolence topic because it might be construed as a social gospel. But if we don't talk about benevolence, it's pretty hard to talk about the gospel. What we're talking about is the word that dwells in us richly, shaping and influencing our behavior. We go so far to, to understand the Great Commission that we think, okay, we go into all the world and we preach the gospel. We don't want to be confused as thinking that, that Jesus went away and told us, make sure you got poverty fixed before I get back, right? Well, we're not called to alleviate poverty. We're called to preach the gospel, but you cannot preach the gospel without living out benevolence. And that's what John's saying here. He's saying, little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth, the gospel lived out. The gospel with open hands. Talking on this, this concept of truth, I want to sneak ahead real briefly to Second John. If we look at how John begins the, this epistle of Second John, he says, The elder, referring to himself, and to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth... And not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. That's abiding truth, and the abiding truth is what drives that benevolent love. And if we go one more page ahead, 3 John, chapter 1, <laughs> verse 1. Keep looking for chapter 2, you won't find it. The elder, again referring to himself, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth, Beloved, I pray that all may be, go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. You see how John weaves that all together through all that he says? He's talking again about his children. Little children, it brings me joy to know that you are walking in the truth. We learned as we moved through Ephesians that the word walk is one that talks about conduct. May your conduct demonstrate the truth of what Christ has done in your life. Two texts to bring us to conclusion. First, Matthew 25. Matthew 25 talks about that final judgment. How Christ, the, the risen lamb, the sacrificial lamb, how he'll return. And when he does, he'll return as a judge. And he'll evaluate our obedience and our righteousness and our love. And, and here's how he'll assess. Look at what it says, starting at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. 
Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see, that doesn't happen, that righteousness isn't because of doing all of those benevolent acts. Those benevolent acts are because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So church, understand that, that this gospel that we've received produces in us benevolence. Produces in us, because of the righteousness of Christ, those fruits. And because of that, when, when he returns, we can stand before, before him with confidence. There's no fear. Am I a sheep or am I a goat? We'll know we're his because of his righteousness manifested through our deeds in truth. And let's close with this one. And I promise I'll close with this one. Colossians chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. The Apostle Paul writes this, And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's thank the Father for his love. Father God, we thank you that we can come before you and we can worship you. We can worship you for who you are. We can worship you for what you've done. And we, we can worship you for what you're doing actively in our hearts and our lives. God, we thank you for your great love as our Father. Jesus, we thank you for your, your great love as the Son. And, and Lord, we ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit, we would show compassionate generosity this week. God, give us as a church the ability to put into action the word that dwells in us richly. Allow that to, to permeate who we are as believers individually and as your hands and feet. Allow us, Lord Jesus, to take stock in all that you've done for us. And out of that, give with generosity. We just pray, Lord God, that we would be overwhelmed with thanksgiving today for all that you have done on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.